Section 31 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 31. The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral, Part 2. There is more description in the paper, and seeing that the woodwork in question has now disappeared, it has a considerable interest. A paragraph at the end is worth quoting. Quote, Some late researches among the chapter accounts have shown me that the carving of the stalls was not, as was very usually reported, the work of Dutch artists, but was executed by a native of this city or district named Austin. The timber was procured from an oak copse in the vicinity, the property of the dean and chapter known as Holywood. Upon a recent visit to the parish within whose boundaries it is situated, I learned from the aged and truly respectable incumbent that traditions still lingered amongst the inhabitants of the great size and age of the oaks employed to furnish the materials of the stately structure which has been, however imperfectly, described in the above lines. Of one in particular, which stood near the centre of the grove, it is remembered that it was known as the Hanging Oak. The propriety of that title is confirmed by the fact that a quantity of human bones was found in the soil about its roots, and that at certain times of the year it was the custom for those who wished to secure a successful issue to their affairs, whether of love or the ordinary business of life, to suspend from its boughs small images or puppets rudely fashioned of straw, twigs, or the like rustic materials. So much for the archdeacon's archaeological investigations. To return to his career as it is to be gathered from his diaries, those of his first three years of hard and careful work show him throughout in high spirits, and doubtless during this time that reputation for hospitality and urbanity which is mentioned in his obituary notice was well deserved. After that, as time goes on, I see a shadow coming over him, destined to develop into utter blackness, which I cannot but think must have been reflected in his outward demeanor. He commits a good deal of his fears and troubles to his diary. There was no other outlet for them. He was unmarried, and his sister was not always with him. But I am much mistaken if he has told all that he might have told. A series of extracts shall be given. Quote, August 30th, 1816. The days begin to draw in more perceptibly than ever. Now that the archdeaconry papers are reduced to order, I must find some further employment for the evening hours of autumn and winter. It is a great blow that Letitia's health will not allow her to stay through these months, why not go on with my defense of episcopacy? It may be useful. September 15th. 
Letitia has left me for Brighton. October 11th. Candles lit in the choir for the first time at evening prayers. It came as a shock. I find that I absolutely shrink from the dark season. November 17th. Much struck by the character of the carving on my desk. I do not know that I had ever carefully noticed it before. My attention was called to it by an accident. During the Magnificat, I was, I regret to say, almost overcome with sleep. My hand was resting on the back of the carved figure of a cat, which is the nearest to me of the three figures on the end of my stall. I was not aware of this, for I was not looking in that direction, until I was startled by what seemed a softness, a feeling as of rather rough and coarse fur, and a sudden movement, as if the creature was twisting round its head to bite me. I regained complete consciousness in an instant, and I have some idea that I must have uttered a suppressed exclamation for I noticed that Mr. Treasurer turned his head quickly in my direction. The impression of the unpleasant feeling was so strong that I found myself rubbing my hand upon my surplice. This accident led me to examine the figures after prayers more carefully than I had done before, and I realized for the first time with what skill they are executed. December 6th. I do, indeed, miss Letitia's company. The evenings, after I have worked as long as I can at my defense, are very trying. The house is too large for a lonely man, and visitors of any kind are too rare. I get an uncomfortable impression when going to my room that there is company of some kind. The fact is... I may as well formulate it to myself, that I hear voices. This, I am well aware, is a common symptom of incipient decay of the brain, and I believe that I should be less disquieted than I am if I had any suspicion that this was the cause. I have none, none whatever, nor is there anything in my family history to give color to such an idea. Work, diligent work, and a punctual attention to the duties which fall to me is my best remedy, and I have little doubt that it will prove efficacious. January 1st. My trouble is, I must confess it, increasing upon me. Last night, Upon my return after midnight from the deanery, I lit my candle to go upstairs. I was nearly at the top when something whispered to me, Let me wish you a happy new year. I could not be mistaken. It spoke distinctly and with a peculiar emphasis. Had I dropped my candle, as I all but did, I tremble to think what the consequences must have been. As it was, I managed to get up the last flight, and was quickly in my room with the door locked, and experienced no other disturbance. January 15th. 
I had occasion to come downstairs last night to my workroom for my watch, which I had inadvertently left on my table when I went up to bed. I think I was at the top of the last flight when I had a sudden impression of a sharp whisper in my ear, Take care. I clutched the balusters and naturally looked round at once. Of course, there was nothing. After a moment, I went on. It was no good turning back. But I had as nearly as possible fallen. A cat, a large one by the feel of it, slipped between my feet. But again, of course, I saw nothing. It may have been the kitchen cat, but I do not think it was. February 27th a curious thing last night which i should like to forget perhaps if i put it down here i may see it in its true proportion i worked in the library from about nine to ten the hall and staircase seemed to be unusually full of what i can only call movement without sound by this i mean that there seemed to be continuous going and coming and that whenever I ceased writing to listen, or looked out into the hall, the stillness was absolutely unbroken. Nor, in going to my room at an earlier hour than usual, about half-past ten, was I conscious of anything that I could call a noise. It so happened that I had told John to come to my room for the letter to the bishop which I wished to have delivered early in the morning at the palace. He was to sit up, therefore, and come for it when he heard me retire. This I had for the moment forgotten, though I had remembered to carry the letter with me to my room. But when, as I was winding up my watch, I heard a light tap at the door, and a low voice saying, May I come in, which I most undoubtedly did hear. I recollected the fact, and took up the letter from my dressing-table, saying, Certainly, come in. No one, however, answered my summons, and it was now that, as I strongly suspect, I committed an error for I opened the door and held the letter out. There was certainly no one at that moment in the passage, but, in the instant of my standing there, the door at the end opened, and John appeared, carrying a candle. I asked him whether he had come to the door earlier, but am satisfied that he had not. I do not like the situation, but although my senses were very much on the alert, and though it was some time before I could sleep, I must allow that I perceived nothing further of an untoward character. With the return of spring, when his sister came to live with him for some months, Dr. Haynes' entries became more cheerful, and indeed no symptom of depression is discernible unto the early part of September, when he was again left alone. And now, indeed, there is evidence that he was incommoded again, and that more pressingly. To this matter I will return in a moment, 
but I digress to put in a document which, rightly or wrongly, I believe to have a bearing on the thread of the story. The account books of Dr. Haynes, preserved along with his other papers, show, from a date but little later than that of his institution as archdeacon, a quarterly payment of twenty-five pounds to J. L., Nothing could have been made of this had it stood by itself. But I connect it with a very dirty and ill-written letter, which, like another that I have quoted, was in a pocket in the cover of a diary. Of date or postmark there is no vestige, and the decipherment was not easy. It appears to run, quote, Dear Sir, I have been expecting to hear of you these last weeks, and, not having done so, must suppose you have not got mine which was saying how me and my man had met in with bad times this season, all seems to go cross with us on the farm, and which way to look for the rent we have no knowledge of it this been the sad case with us if you would have the great liberality probably but the exact spelling defies reproduction to send forty pounds otherwise steps will have to be took which i should not wish as you was the means of my losing my place with Dr. Pulteney, I think it is only just what I am asking, and you know best what I could say if I was put to it, but I do not wish anything of that unpleasant nature, being one that always wished to have everything pleasant about me. Your obedient servant, Jane Lee. End quote. About the time at which I suppose this letter to have been written, there is, in fact, a payment of forty pounds to J. L. We return to the diary. Quote, October twenty second. At evening prayers, during the Psalms, I had that same experience which I recollect from last year. I was resting my hand on one of the carved figures, as before. I usually avoid that of the cat now. And, I was going to have said, a change came over it, but that seems attributing too much importance to what must, after all, be due to some physical affection in myself. At any rate, the wood seemed to become chilly and soft, as if made of wet linen i can assign the moment at which i became sensible of this the choir was singing the words set thou an ungodly man to be ruler over him and let satan stand at his right hand the whispering in my house was more persistent to-night i seemed not to be rid of it in my room i have not noticed this before a nervous man, which I am not, and hope I am not becoming, would have been much annoyed if not alarmed by it. The cat was on the stairs to-night. I think it sits there always, 
There is no kitchen cat. November 15th. Here again I must note a matter I do not understand. I am much troubled in sleep. No definite image presented itself, but I was pursued by the very vivid impression that wet lips were whispering into my ear with great rapidity and emphasis for some time together. After this, I suppose I fell asleep, but was awakened with a start by a feeling as if a hand were laid on my shoulder. To my intense alarm, I found myself standing at the top of the lowest flight on the first staircase. The moon was shining brightly enough through the large window to let me see that there was a large cat on the second or third step. I could make no comment. I crept up to bed again. I do not know how. Yes, mine is a heavy burden." Then follows a line or two which has been scratched out. I fancy I read something like, Acted for the best. Not long after this, it is evident to me that the archdeacon's firmness began to give way under the pressure of these phenomena. I omit as unnecessarily painful and distressing, the ejaculations and prayers which, in the months of December and January, appear for the first time and become increasingly frequent. Throughout this time, however, he is obstinate in clinging to his post. Why he did not plead ill health and take refuge at Bath or Brighton, I cannot tell. My impression is that it would have done him no good that he was a man who, if he had confessed himself beaten by the annoyances, would have succumbed at once, and that he was conscious of this. He did seek to palliate them by inviting visitors to his house. The result he has noted in this fashion. Quote, January 7th. I have prevailed on my cousin Alan to give me a few days, and he is to occupy the chamber next to mine. January 8th. A still night. Alan slept well, but complained of the wind. My own experiences were as before, still whispering and whispering. What is it that he wants to say? January 9th. Alan thinks this is a very noisy house. He thinks, too, that my cat is an unusually large and fine specimen, but very wild. January 10th. Alan and I in the library until eleven. He left me twice to see what the maids were doing in the hall. Returning the second time, he told me he had seen one of them passing through the door at the end of the passage, and said if his wife were here, she would soon get them into better order. I asked him what colored dress the maid wore. He said gray or white. I supposed it would be so. January 11th. Alan left me today. I must be firm. These words, I must be firm, 
occur again and again on subsequent days. Sometimes they are the only entry. In these cases they are in an unusually large hand and dug into the paper in a way which must have broken the pen that wrote them. Apparently the archdeacon's friends did not remark any change in his behavior, and this gives me a high idea of his courage and determination. The diary tells us nothing more than I have indicated of the last days of his life. The end of it all must be told in the polished language of the obituary notice. Quote, the morning of the 26th of February was cold and tempestuous. At an early hour the servants had occasion to go into the front hall of the residence occupied by the lamented subject of these lines. What was their horror upon observing the form of their beloved and respected master lying upon the landing of the principal staircase in an attitude which inspired the gravest fears? Assistance was procured, and an universal consternation was experienced upon the discovery that he had been the object of a brutal and a murderous attack the vertebral column was fractured in more than one place this might have been the result of a fall it appeared that the stair carpet was loosened at one point but in addition to this there were injuries inflicted upon the eyes nose and mouth as if by the agency of some savage animal which dreadful to relate rendered those features unrecognizable the vital spark was, it is needless to add, completely extinct, and had been so upon the testimony of respectable medical authorities for several hours. The author or authors of this mysterious outrage are alike buried in mystery, and the most active conjecture has hitherto failed to suggest a solution of the melancholy problem afforded by this appalling occurrence. The writer goes on to reflect upon the probability that the writings of Mr. Shelley, Lord Byron, and M. Voltaire may have been instrumental in bringing about the disaster, and concludes by hoping, somewhat vaguely, that this event may operate as an example to the rising generation, but this portion of his remarks need not be quoted in full. I had already formed the conclusion that Dr. Haynes was responsible for the death of Dr. Pulteney, but the incident connected with the carved figure of death upon the archdeacon's stall was a very perplexing feature. The conjecture that it had been cut out of the wood of the hanging oak was not difficult, but seemed impossible to substantiate. However, I paid a visit to Barchester, partly with the view of finding out whether there were any relics of the woodwork to be heard of. I was introduced by one of the canons to the curator of the local museum, who was, my friend said, more likely to be able to give me information on the point than anyone else. I told this gentleman of the description of certain carved figures and arms formerly on the stalls, and asked whether any had survived. 
he was able to show me the arms of dean west and some other fragments these he said had been got from an old resident who had also once owned a figure perhaps one of those which i was inquiring for there was a very odd thing about the figure he said the old man who had it told me that he picked it up in a woodyard whence he had obtained the still extant pieces and had taken it home for his children on the way home he was fiddling about with it and it came in two in his hands and a bit of paper dropped out this he picked up and just noticing that there was writing on it put it into his pocket and subsequently into a vase on his mantelpiece i was at his house not very long ago and happened to pick up the vase and turn it over to see whether there were any marks on it and the paper fell into my hand the old man on my handing it to him told me the story i have told you and said i might keep the paper it was crumpled and rather torn so i have mounted it on a card which i have here if you can tell me what it means i shall be very glad and also i may say a good deal surprised he gave me the card the paper was quite legibly inscribed in an old hand and this is what was on it Quote, when i grew in the wood i was watered with blood now in the church i stand who that touches me with his hand if a bloody hand he bear i counsel him to beware lest he be fetched away whether by night or day but chiefly when the wind blows high in a night of february this i dreamt twenty sixth february sixteen ninety nine john austin End quote. i suppose it is a charm or a spell wouldn't you call it something of that kind said the curator yes i said i suppose one might what became of the figure in which it was concealed oh i forgot said he the old man told me it was so ugly and frightened his children so much that he burnt it end of section thirty one end of the stalls of barchester cathedral by montague rhodes james